Welcome to the Humans of Hospitality podcast. I know so many of you listening to this show love your local bar, your local restaurant, maybe your local hotel, and have so many fond memories of time in hospitality businesses. This is the podcast where we get to chat to the human beings behind the scenes of that industry. Maybe the chefs or the bakers or the coffee roasters or the gin distillers or the craft brewers or the entrepreneurs, but all doing an amazing job of making sure the hospitality stays interesting and the big dull formulaic brands do not take over our high street please enjoy the show In this week's episode, I had the pleasure of trip-trapping down to one of Mitch Tonk's restaurants in Weymouth. Now, Mitch is one of three founders of The Seahorse and co-founder of The Rockfish family of restaurants. And he's a champion of the sea and of preparing seafood simply and sustainably. You'll probably know him. You might have one of his cookbooks, visited his award-winning Seahorse or Rockfish restaurant, or watched him on TV with world-class rugby player Matt Dawson. You'll also know that Mitch is one of the country's most fervent ambassadors for fish, and you'll hear just how fervent when he talks about the planetary benefits of freezing fish, whether prawns should be on or off the menu, and what he's doing to make sure that the rubbish his trawlermen collect from the sea isn't dumped straight back into the ocean. Mitch is also great on the difference between real hospitality and that stage set version, and why the willingness to chat is an absolute must if you want to become a restaurant owner. So let's get on with the serious business of chatting. Enjoy this week's conversation with Mitch. Mitch Tonks, thank you so much for uh, sparing the time to come on the podcast. Much appreciated. Pleasure. It's good to, uh, good to be chatting to you, Mark. Can you just explain, Mitch, where on planet Earth are we for the listeners, please? Uh, we are sat in the new Rockfish restaurant on the Esplanade in Weymouth, uh, overlooking the beach, and uh, it's a glorious, glorious sunny day. It is, a literally beautiful sun streaming through. So peak season, how long have you been open here? Uh, this restaurant's been open seven weeks, and um, it's been going really, really fantastically well. Yeah. And uh, Weymouth is uh, an extraordinary place, quite, quite diverse. And, um, but lots of really, really great people living here. And uh, we've managed to build up a pretty good local following already. Amazing. And it's peak season. It's August. The sun's out. So you're, you're frantically busy. So, uh, yeah, double thanks for sparing the time no, to chat to me. No, it's an absolute pleasure. I love chatting. That's what we good, do, right? Good. It's true. It's hospitality. It's, yeah. what it's, what it's why I come and do these face-to-face and not by the phone. It's all yeah, about, yeah, it's all yeah, about yeah, meeting yeah, no, people exactly. and hanging out in their spaces. I often wonder what my job is, actually. And, yeah, you, know, I kind of, you know, we've got three, four hundred people in the company. And I think, I wonder what my job is these days. And actually, you realise your job is chatting, right? Yeah, just chatting to the staff, yeah. helping people how you, how you want things, how things to look and how you want things to be and, uh, and helping people achieve, like really great goals in the company you know as well as chatting to guests i mean that's what yeah. we do chat yeah and i think that that is where authentic hospitality comes from isn't it if you do it yeah. for the right reasons if you're doing it for for the love of hospitality and not just for the uh, profit and loss yeah account, then, uh, i think i think the thing is is like you know restaurants are places like i think about the seahorse in dartmouth which is like the yeah, sort of Perfect. yeah great case we just got some drinks back. being delivered so yeah, thank yeah, you very love, much love espresso and, espresso and brandy uh, to and get my morning Mitch. brandy which is like you know cheers katie thank you that's one of my morning things mark is it yeah every day that's what keeps you looking so young and and uh, I don't know, you know, spent my life going around various fish markets early hours of the morning and, you know, Spain and Italy and places. And it's fairly normal for people to have a shot of something with coffee. And uh, I have a shot of something. People have got used to it now, but people used to think, oh, he's a really big drinker, that guy, you know. Actually, I'm not. I just like a drink in the morning, you know. Yeah, it's a perfect. Thing, yeah. That'll keep you going until... Yeah, till tonight. You know, oh, till, till tonight. tonight. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that'd be Excellent. cool. Yeah, be good. good, good. So um, really looking forward to hearing your adventure, you know, yeah. 
followed your story anyway because we share a, a part of the country in in many ways down yeah. here in the in the southwest uh and you've done a couple of adventures and you've you know you've written books yeah. and you've been on the telly you've opened restaurants you've closed restaurants so we're going to go through all of that and what yeah. you're doing now but i just want to go back first of all just to put it in context what got you into cooking what's your earliest memories of, of cooking and, and fish i guess well my earliest memories would probably be hanging around my grandmother i was brought up mainly by my my grandmother my mum was working with a single parent family in the 60s and we used to have a chain of fishmongers near us called Mac Fisheries. And they, apparently they used to be all over, over Britain. And my nan used to send me down there or I'd go down with her and we'd buy like um, some brown shrimps, uh, some crabs, some fish. And I always remember sitting around a table peeling these brown shrimps to make sandwiches, picking crabs with her, all that kind of thing. And then we'd go down to Beer Regis and get some, some stuff. And so I guess that's my early memories of seafood and, and cooking. And, but I ended up in it going off into a career in building and all sorts of different things and, uh, you know, loved cooking, but actually never dreamed for a moment. I was one of these kids that just couldn't wait to get out of school and into the big wide world and, you know, thought I knew it all. And uh, it wasn't until I was 27 that I really realised that actually what I wanted to do was, like, sell food to people. And uh, I wasn't cooking then. And I opened a fishmonger shop in Bath. And um, it was at a time when farmers markets didn't exist. I remember opening the first farmer's market with Henrietta Green on Radio 4 food programme in Bath. And, um, and it was really great. And, I, and this fish shop was, was awesome. I was selling, you know, tunas and sharks and like, amazing things. It looked like Harrods Food Hall every morning because, of course, fishmongers in England had kind of given up by then. You know, there's guys in white coats selling cod and haddock, pretty grumpy, stinky places. And mine wasn't like that. And, uh, and then I just thought, like, people were coming in the restaurant and, sorry, in the shop, and they were saying, like, where can I go and eat this stuff in the town? And at the time, there were some pretty good restaurants, you know, independents around in those days. But it was all French-based, and everything was covered in cream and all the rest of it. And I was at home grilling red mullets, steaming cockles, and, like, doing amazing stuff. And, and it was all simple, you know, Drain Griggs and Elizabeth David cookbooks. That was all I had. They were like, this is easy, and it is really delicious. And so I thought, right, I'm going to open a restaurant above the fish shop. And, you know, I, I remember so many people saying, like, you're mental. Like, first-floor restaurants will never work, and will never work above a fish shop. And I was like... But it's fairly obvious, right? And, and that was what happened. And it was a struggle. You know, I, I got divorced at the time. I was living there. I was sleeping on a sofa. I was worrying, can I get through to the end of the week, pay wages, you know, all the kind of stuff that happens. And uh, Rick Stein came into the restaurant and ate, which was really good. He was just sort of starting off his TV show stuff then. And, and, uh, and I started doing TV, got asked to do TV, wrote a book. And suddenly things took off. We had an amazing review in the papers and... Suddenly, people were like interested in what I was doing, and that was that was a start, really. And, and the roller coaster started. Yeah, and it was, you know, it was it was bonkers because like in those days, the restaurant industry wasn't like it is now. I mean, there weren't so many for a start, and like there weren't as many opening, there weren't as much interest in it. You know, there were long established restaurants, but there weren't many funky new ones starting up. And um, so I got a few mates together, and we opened a restaurant in Christchurch, we opened one in Bristol. And we had no idea what we were doing. It was just like, here's a fish counter, here's a restaurant. We kind of, I knew what I wanted them to be like. But I mean, running multiple restaurants and businesses were, were tough. And uh, so I found a few pals and people to chuck money in. And then in 2004, I think it was, 2003, we opened in Chiswick. And, uh, and, it, and it came around because I was sat with my literary agent in this Italian restaurant. And I said, wow, this would make a really great kind of fish works, as we called the restaurants then. And she said, well, Aldo's a friend of mine, the owner. Why don't you ask him if he wants to sell it? So I was like, Aldo, you know, do you want to sell the restaurant? And he was like, yeah, yeah, I'd love to sell it. So we did a deal and, uh, and we went to London. And, and in those days, I, I thought like Chiswick was London and I had no idea that it was like this kind of village that was, you know, 10 miles out. And, and we opened, you know, had no money. I remember like one of the crazy stories sitting there with my, one of my investors and business partner, Roy at the time, like 
short of money to pay builders. And we bunged 20 grand on a horse called Earthmover, uh, nine to four, and the horse lost. And we were like, you know, wow. completely and utterly like, you know, we're skint. And all we had was like- You, you did that specifically to try and fund the restaurant? Yeah, really? yeah, 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 we did that, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> the you banks know, these, were even unhelpful in those days, was, Mitch. They've was, got a reputation there now was as being money. I mean, it was all our own money and we'd, we, we'd run out and the other restaurants were doing okay. So we were kind of like working through cash flow. Anyway, one of the great things happened was we had an amazing review from Matthew Norman, nine and a half out of 10. And suddenly people like Jimmy Chu, Roger Daltrey, I mean, Jamie Oliver, we were at the same publishers together at the same time, Penguin, he was a great supporter. And suddenly it became a thing. And it was like paying the builder was no problem. You know, the restaurant was, I can't remember what the numbers were, but if they were X, we took Y. And then we opened in Marleybone High Street. And uh, I always remember in our first year, we'd made 480 odd grand and it was like, you know, massive success. Everything was amazing. And somebody persuaded me to float the company on the stock market, raise a whole load of money and like, you know, just open another 10 mile of bone high streets, right? And you'll be, that'll be so you'll it. Be, you'll right? be away. Bigger boat. So kind of that's what we did. And um, we bought a fish business and, you know, I, I moved down to Brixham and we had a really great team. Technology was different then, how running multiple restaurants. And we opened a restaurant on, on Harvey Nichols on the fifth floor. We thought that's it, you know, great. You know, we're going to be up there with this lovely oyster bar. It's going to be cool. And... We opened it on the day of the July 7 bombings. Oh, wow. And it was a disaster, of course. You know, nobody went to Harvey Nichols for three months and uh, London was changed. And we had to negotiate our way out of that, which cost like half a million quid. And we were, you know, wow. plus all the fit out. And it was a real pain. But this is where the big lesson learned because the city is very unforgiving. So even though we went back to investors and said, look, it's going to be a profit warning this year. We haven't got Harvey Nichols. They were like, but you said you were going to make this much. You said you were going to do that. Open restaurants quicker so that at least you can make the profit in year two. And we all know what happens when you try to open restaurants too quick. And, yes. uh, and, and it all came crashing down. And, 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 and what year um, was this? That was in like 2007. So I kind of left in 2007. Luke Johnson bought in with a new management team and I didn't get on with the management team. And uh, two years later, the, you know, they, they raised a whole load more money and had a vision for the business that wasn't the same vision that I had. And um, uh, Matt, who was my kind of longtime pal, who was my ops director in, um, uh, and a brilliant chef and a great mate, in um, Fishworks, I said to him, we, well, we'd always said that one day when made a load of money, we'll open a place by the sea and cook fish over a fire. So he was living in Bath, I was living in Brixham. I found this premises in Dartmouth. I said that I'm gonna open this place called the Seahorse Mat, join me. He was like, I'll come and help you, but I live in Bath, right? You know, what am I gonna do? Worked, we worked together opening it and he was like, I can't work with anyone else by you. I'm, I'm relocating the family and, you know, came down and, and the rest is history. And uh, we've worked together um, like, you know, he's my left arm, you know, really? right so, arm. I mean, just yeah. brilliant, brilliant. Nice. And uh, was the seahorse, was that very different from what you've so done the at seahorse is a kind of like, yeah, the seahorse was a kind of like, uh, I wanted it to become an institution. I wanted to create a fish restaurant that was going to be here in 100 years time, something that was a, r a real asset to the town that was like classically decorated, that was pastas and seafood cooked over an open fire and it was really where I, I got back in the kitchen uh, with Matt and was able to express my own creat creativity and do things. And, do you think uh, that motivation for longevity was because of what had happened with Fishworks and you needed to, to was there an, think, an element of proving something to yourself? Yeah and going, I think, I think but, I'd gone through this kind of stage of suddenly you know I, I didn't spend any time in restaurants so I was spending my time in around the stock market around the city around bankers and I went through this weird thing that like money was really important that you know you know I was driving nice cars you know he was kind of like yeah this is great you know we're all going to make a load of money and it was like a really wrong motivation. And, uh, and I kind of grew through that and thought, I want a simpler life. And uh, actually what I want to do is cook for the rest of my life. And, and that was what the Seahorse is all about, building this family restaurant. And in the process, 
I kind of realized I needed to make some more money. And, you know, I think as an entrepreneur, you never stop dreaming up ideas. It doesn't come a day when you kind of stop. It's, just, it's not about money, it's just who you are. And Rockfish came around, which was the idea was, why don't we open a, originally the idea was a fish and chip restaurant where you could come in and eat out of boxes inside a kind of beach hut. And it would be like really cool, like loads of fried fish and it'd be brilliant. And that, that was a very different end of the market than yeah, Fishworks and Seahawks, I guess. Yeah, Were both of those more premium? Or? Yeah, Fishworks was quite premium because you had a combination of a fish counter and a restaurant and it was like, it was quite pioneering in the fact that you, you could buy fish to take away and you could have it cooked in. Um, and the Seahorse is like, I wanted it to just, just be this sort of really felt like a family run restaurant, felt like you just walked into the back streets of Venice or somewhere and like this place was here forever. And, um, and now the Seahorse has become that institution. Um, we're 10 years in, we picked up a whole load of awards. It's full night and day. It is that like community restaurant that people love. Um, you know, Jake, our head chef, who's been with us since he was an apprentice and he's now head chef there. He's an amazing guy. And um, uh, young tits, as we call him, Matt, uh, sous chef. I got him from college as a 17 year old. He's now 22 as sous chef. My son, Ben, has been a chef for 10 years. He's, he's sort of, he's been with us and then he traveled and he went to work with uh, Nevis at uh, Sabor and then he came back. So he's there. My youngest daughter and a boyfriend work there. Wow, um, nice. front of house. That so is a proper family restaurant. a proper then. family restaurant. And we all, as a family, believe in, the, in this legacy of what we've created. We opened a bar there in a private dining room and every day we focus on it being better. And people say to me like, could you open another one? I'm like, no. Well, I was just gonna say, is that, is that the reason that you didn't roll out Seahorse, it was Fishworks, yeah. it was deliberately different because it's, yeah. it's, it's a different... Fishworks was like, I mean, concept. you know, I, you know we, we thought the only way to grow a business in those days was like open lots of them, you know, because that's what Pizza Express do and all those guys and you're chasing big money. Um, nowadays, it's, we open restaurants for very different reasons. Um, but the Seahorse, the detail that goes into the Seahorse, the long days, it's hospitality, I think, at its absolute best. When guests are there at four o'clock drinking, you're still serving them knowing that you're not going to get a break because they want another brandy or they want another bit of cheese out of the kitchen and one chef's left behind and one waiter's on the floor and they have to lay up around that guests. And, and, and for me, that's what great hospitality is all about. All about. And, you know, we have extraordinary people that work, work there that um, carry the baton now, really. Yeah, that's incredible, isn't yeah, it? How many covers awesome. is it? It's 40 covers in the dining room and we will occasionally lay up the bar and then we've got a private dining room, uh, which is 14 people with its own kitchen. Nice. And uh, we have grills on the street. I mean, I, you know, I marvel at it sometimes and I, I look at the food there and I, I eat there and I drink the wine there and I'm like, this is awesome. You know, it's got a life of its own, which is really, really beautiful, which is, I think, when that's when a restaurant really works. Yeah. When Can you enjoy it? Can you sit in there and relax? Yeah, I, I never used to, but now I think, um, you know, I was very clear a couple of years ago about saying, look, I, I don't cook anymore. Matt was really tied up with, obviously, he's got a very clever brain about systems and things like that so he was fully involved with rockfish i remained cooking for a while and in the end it was like jake you know you, this is your time you know this is up to you guys so there was a kind of handover period while you kind of make sure that everyone really understands the depth of what you're trying to achieve and now i'm really honest about the fact that i don't cook I'm, i i wait at tables on a saturday night and i'm in the restaurant and now the restaurant has a new new life they're standing on our shoulders and doing bigger and greater things and that for me is incredible joy. Nice. But you can now go there for dinner and sit can, there and enjoy it. I can it. go there for that's, dinner and enjoy it. And I love to see nice. the guests and, yeah. you know, you feel, you know, I always feel like I want to be that 70 year old guy uh, carving the steak at the table for people and still able to tell people about what would be our like 
yeah, we've been open here for 40 years and uh, it's a nice. family business. It's me and Matt and our kids and yeah. blah, blah, and, you know. Yeah, that, 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 that's yeah. the dream. I ate at uh, my restaurant on the, on the balcony on the seafront last week and it was a really sunny weekend and I normally... Uh, I should say avoid the place is probably a little bit harsh, but I'm, the, I'm not operationally there. I slow the team down, basically. If you try and put me on the till, I'm not cool enough to be behind the bar. I'll try and put me on the till. Yeah. So, so generally, I don't go because I'm a bit all or nothing. It's either I'm going to go in and take control or yeah. I, need to, I need to not be there. But he, was, uh, he said, I'm going to take this as a compliment. The fact you've actually come in with your family and you're sat here having dinner and we yeah. sat on the balcony overlooking the ocean and it was a glorious sunny day. I was still, to be fair, not facing the restaurant. I was facing the other yeah, way because yeah, to yeah. actually watch service in your own restaurant yeah. can be a thing of yeah. great pride and joy. But invariably I'm noticing the uh, yeah, no, the yeah. couple that are waiting to order their next drink or whatever it might be so you need a really good team I'm exactly I think the same once you can enjoy and, uh, it you know that you've got a good team basically. I mean so. even, I mean, I'm always still like bring the lights down do this yeah. do that I mean you're, you're kind of tuned in and I think one of the things that all of our staff in all the restaurants are like look when Mitch comes in just like make sure everything is alright because if there is one glass that's dirty everything else will be right but he'll just pick it all up and, and I hear people saying that and in some ways I think you know what that's great. That's the kind of standards you, the standards you set and the culture you build. Yeah. Um, but I think one of the things that I really love about restaurants these days and building them is the sense of watching other people uh, succeed in doing things. So even here, young Katie joined us as a manageress and like what she's achieved with her team under Dave Strauss, who's another great hospitality, you know, giant. You know, he's imparting all of that knowledge and stuff about uh, hospi hospitality on these guys. It's just brilliant, you know. Yeah. Well, you mentioned your head chef who you took from, yeah, apprentice yeah, head chef over Jake. 10 years, was it? And, and that's great, isn't it? I don't think there's a greater yeah. reward than seeing people develop and, and kind of, yeah, for, you know, fulfill yeah. their potential, but do it in a, in a nice environment where they're actually respected because yeah. there's a lot of rubbish jobs in hospitality, I think, isn't there? So well, can... we're on a mission to change that. I think it's one of those things I'm sure everyone is, you know, we're struggling like mad, aren't we, with staffing and people have got, as you say, got this, this thing about the industry. And I kind of feel like at Rockfish, we're three to 400 people. We're not there yet, but I want, I want people to feel like this is the best job in the world. I want people to like really value it. I want people to like police each other on standards. I want to make sure that, you know, we're working towards like three and four day weeks. I want to make sure that we're working towards like, you know, tips everyone has anyway, proper pay for people. Uh, and I want people to be really efficient. You know, we don't want people hanging around late at night, wasting hours. You know, if we're going to pay you well, there's less of you. You work harder. But the service standards, the levels are great, all of it. And you know what? You can have a life as well, um, which hospitality usually robs us all yeah, of, as we know. Which, which is a, a sort of oxymoron, isn't it? The fact that we spend our lives looking after people who are enjoying birthdays, yeah. anniversaries, graduations, whatever family yeah. ga gatherings it is. And if you do hospitality because you love it, that's the joy. Yeah. It's not selling an extra beer or an extra glass of wine. It's actually creating spaces where yeah. humans spend time. Yet behind the scenes, all too often, our staff, our teams are compromising on the time they spend with their family because they're, they're working Absolutely. long hours. So yeah, it's a challenge, I think. It? But it does seem to finally... Uh, be changing at the same time as as you know pay and pension costs and all that stuff's going up yeah, and food's I mean, going up so so margins in the industry are making it hard but it does feel like we're we're on a, a more positive trajectory I we suppose, are, and I, I, I think also eating out especially in the you know the world of seafood you know we don't have a cheap chicken liver or black pudding or a pancake that we can put on the menu and still get six or seven quid for like everything we buy is you know incredibly expensive and when people say to me hey Mitch you know you're fried fish is 14 quid or you know whatever it feels like a lot of money I'm like it's a real product man you know it's like there is no cheap out that's the cost of it and I think like people will value eating out a lot more in the future because like it's quite a privilege to be served by somebody 
everyone's just got used to the fact you go to a restaurant somebody brings you some food right it's like somebody's serving you it's like a, it's a it's a it's a proper art right yeah. and when i was growing up we went out on high days and holidays we didn't go out monday tuesday wednesday thursday to the different places so something's got to shift yeah. and um you know that's why asia is so good you know because you, you just grab your crockery grab your curry sit in a plastic bowl and eat it and it's like that's what eating out is in these kind of like small little cafes imagine that in england yeah. everyone wants to go out and like be served wine list yeah. you know for like 10 quid yeah. no you know, it's true it's yeah. impossible i was chatting to uh, gareth banner from the ned up in london who's yeah. got nearly a thousand staff yeah. in, in one building and uh, we were chatting about the fact there was something like they, they'd worked out that when people come and stay for two nights or whatever it was there was something like 350 points of contact between his team and any guests that were staying wow. over those 48 hours wow. and to try and manage every single point of contact you know yeah, to, yeah. to be a positive engagement and a positive experience because we're in service and hospitality what a challenge that is yet the public have got no idea that there's that many people or that many points of contact no. and every point of contact they're going to cost some cash fundamentally doesn't it? those people are, yeah. are being paid to, to look after you so yeah, yeah we do need to pay a little bit more for what we're having speaking of which was there a dive back a little bit but yeah. accountancy at some point was that your yeah, profession yeah, yeah, I, was I, that I, useful I, yeah no what it was actually I didn't go into accountancy formally I, I met this really amazing guy called Richard Vale who uh, he ran a clothing business in London or, or it was a business that made uh, um, equipment to make clothes and he kind of serviced it and uh, he was just a brilliant entrepreneur and I had a really good head for figures and I, I started working for him I, don't know how, I, I can't remember how I met him and I worked with him for a couple of years. It was a bonkers business. I mean, it was absolutely you know, nuts. And I ran the money and it was incredibly profitable. And there was lots of cash flying around in those days and lots of skullduggery with clients with liquidate companies start again overnight. I mean, it was like that was the East End in, in you know, 25 years ago, 26 years ago. And I realized I couldn't, this wasn't going to be a career. And, uh, and, and it was actually driving home one night. I was driving past the Swindon Junction. I was 27 years old listening to Paul Weller. And I decided at that moment, I am not going back to work. I had a mortgage, I had two kids, I had no money. And I was, gonna, I was gonna get into the food business. And you know, I still look back at that moment as thinking that it was the most empowering moment of my life. And I think truly when people make a decision, whatever that decision is, as long as you're clear that there's no going back, like you experience freedom and momentum in a way that nothing else can give you mm. it's truly amazing you, you can't sort of look back you've got to say that's what i'm doing and, and i'm done right the whole, my whole life is that and and i still remember it today and you that's, know that's that's quite amazing it. because it's a hard thing to do but but if you're you're earning good money yeah you've got a wife and kids what what had you been thinking about it for a long time was that the kind of combination yeah, of two was, years it of was like the um i was deeply unhappy i was 27 mm. and thinking where's my life going i'm driving yeah. up the motorway i'm enjoying my life there i stay in london i come home i I don't see my family, I'm not fulfilled, I want to sail around the world, which is my ultimate dream. Okay. And how am, I, how am I going to make that happen? And I just thought, I want to sell fish. That's what I want to do, nobody else is doing it. I love seafood, I've grown up by the beach. Um, that's what I want to do, and that's what I'm going to do. Thank goodness and, for Paul Weller, eh? And that, uh, thank goodness for Paul Weller, but you, you, you know, this is true. I, I, went, I, I left the house. Um, I didn't tell my wife for a week, really? because it was like one of those things, I left the house to go to work as normal and went to wow. Cornwall and saw a guy down there called John Strike who ran a great place in Port Levin, Fishmongers, and I asked him for his help, you know, where, where do you buy fish and, you know, how do you, how do you, as it get to places and, you know, this is what I want to try and do and, and I went and worked with him and he helped me and, you know, I broke the news to my wife and she was like, she went mental and she said, like, why didn't you tell me a week? I said, because you got on mental yeah. then. I mean, it was <laughs> just like, I was just delaying the inevitable, you know. And, um, 
and it was a crazy decision. Um, but, but at least I, you had I, a plan but it, but it was so the, you didn't uh, have any premises at this point? No, or? nothing. So I mean, it was literally, I was... And how I, long I did it take enough. from decision then to, to open? I, uh, the premises I found within, you know, I knew there were empty shops around Bath and I found right. one and was able to get in and it was an old clothes shop and I had seven and a half thousand pounds worth of savings and that went in right. and, and, and that was how we did it. And so I built it out of MDF and it looked really cool. It was great. It was called the fish market in those days. And... Um, I didn't realise the amount of water that you have in a fish premises running everywhere. So this whole place is built out of MDF and within Brilliant. 12 months it melted. It's twice the size. You know, yeah, it melted. You know. <laughs> and, uh, but those are, those are learning curves, right? I mean, yeah. you know. And then the supply chain, because you're not by the water in Bath either. No, so I mean, it just, just, comes up, just comes up overnight from Cornwall. And, uh, and that was when I met, you know, the guys, Nigel and uh, uh, Ian and Martin from Channel Fisheries, which was a company that we ended up buying uh, when right. we had Fishworks. But, you know, two of my greatest friends today, they, they sent me up a box of fish and said, you know, have a look at this. It was awesome. Really? Yeah, and they, they, they became our supplier, Brixham, and now they're called Brixham Seafish. Great guys. Excellent. You also dived into home delivery at one point as well, is that right? Can you yeah. just explain a bit about that? Because that's obviously all the rage now, in, certainly in the restaurant world, but this yeah. was more in, in the This was more fish. just sending uh, fresh fish to people's homes. Right. And I think that like we didn't do a good enough job for people to kind of really get on it. The idea was there. It was really great. You were, you were and, pretty uh, ahead of your time at that. Really. It was because ahead of the time, and now the internet is, you know, people, people buy it. regularly. Exactly. Yeah, no, in those days, it was like a hard slug, what, fish, fresh fish by post? No, actually loads of people do it really really well and, uh, and and make that work and it's you know a dream that one day we may well start that sort of thing again with rockfish as it as it, as it kind of grows yeah. you, you trailblazed it how long did you do that for uh, we did it for a couple of years and i think we um at one point we did really really well we used to have really busy months at christmas and busy months in the summer and uh, but i think we were just inexperienced at running this kind of multifaceted business and i think i think what i was doing was just like let's just do stuff. Yeah, let's just do loads of stuff. It's enthusiasm and everything else that made it work. And of course, I've been lucky enough in this business to, you know, I realised that I needed to do things differently. And, yeah. were you, I, sorry, I was going to say, yeah. were you writing books at this time as well? Yeah, was yeah that? I've, I've written five books. So at the time I was writing books, I was doing a TV series with Matt Dawson all, all and all this kind of stuff. And I did a load of Saturday Kitchens in the early days. So my, my TV career was sort of like before food TV was really big food TV. Like you had Jamie, Rick and... Yeah. You know, a few of the other guys that were the big guys, but Saturday Kitchen was sort of popular, but not what it is now. There were still, um, in fact, you know, a load of my mates in the industry now, Simon, Rimmer, and all those kind of guys, that uh, we all used to work on a TV channel called Great Food Live with a lady called Janet Barnett, and that's your Paul Hollywood. You know, we were all just like, they were presenters, I was a guest, and we all met in those days, but food TV was really small, you know. Yeah. And um, and that was my TV career. And then, then you know, Matt, Matt Dawes and I got offered another series, and. I decided on the day we were about to sign the contract that I didn't, I didn't want to do it anymore, which was upsetting and caused a lot of people to be cross. And I just thought, you know what? The day somebody comes into the Seahorse and they say, where's Mitch? And the answer would be, he's filming. I just felt like it wouldn't be the Seahorse anymore. Okay. And uh, I decided that uh, as glamorous and enjoyable it looked, I wanted to be a chef and restaurateur, not a TV chef. That's good. Yeah, because yeah. I think you, know, you say that, <clears throat> excuse me, yeah, that glamorous side of it. And I, to be fair, we were doing some research last night and getting ready for our chat. I watched some outtakes of you and Matt, which I think are on your website. And you had good, good, good we uh, rapport. Time, you, were, you were very, very funny. So yeah, I can imagine that was, uh, yeah, it was a big the decision best. to turn it, to turn it, it down. It was, and Matt and I was really funny because it was a series I was doing and they, the TV channel wanted to um, like screen test me with some people. It was like Phil Tufnell, Brian Blessed, and then you know Matt Dawson. And we did it in the Chiswick restaurant. And Matt turned up and he's like, one of the most phenomenal guys ever. I mean, just, you know, really friendly, really amazing, made me feel at ease. And we spent six weeks together traveling around, like sometimes in the van, sometimes by plane, sometimes being driven. And uh, we, were, we were locked in this bubble 
And, you know, we drank, we laughed. I got to hear firsthand the experience of winning the World Cup. And, you know, I always remember one really amazing story. Uh, I'll just tell you very quickly. I, the, the van that we used was, one of my, was my old van. It was renovated for the series. And before Penn and I, my wife and my kids moved to Dartmouth, we used to drive down to a place called Stoke Fleming in the van. And we'd park it on top of the hill and Penn would make up a lovely bed and I'd be cuddling Izzy. And I had a TV put in it and I was watching um, the 2003 World Cup because I'd recorded it. It was like, oh, amazing, amazing. Anyway, we mothballed the van for two years, got it all out. Me and Dawes are driving along together. And he was like, what, what's this CD in it? It's not playing anything. And I was like, you're not going to believe it, Matt. I said, but like that CD is a recording of the, of the World Cup final. Oh, wow. I said, like, I couldn't believe, like in my wildest dreams, that the next time I was going to be in this van, That's it was like incredible. with you. Yeah. And he looked at me and he said, do you think when I pass that ball to Johnny Wilkinson in my wildest dreams, <laughs> I'd be sat in a van with a fishmonger? It's one of those kind of you were on different trajectories. One of, one yeah, up, one yeah, down. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was awesome. And we just we just had the best time ever. And uh, you know, we 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 drank a lot. And he's yeah. an awesome guy. Yeah. yeah, we did a show with him actually once. So some sort of record-breaking fish and chips attempt. We we ended up cooking this huge halibut. I can't remember what the show was. It was some sort of food series, yeah. and it was it was uh, extreme record-breaking attempt. Yeah, so we yeah. had to cook this massive fish and chips, which we did in Bournemouth Square. And yeah, great, very uh, very warm, very yeah natural kind of hospitality Great really guy. chatty and yeah. good to talk to um, the other kind of thing before we get on, on back onto um, um, rockfish I'm getting get my brand yeah. the right way around yeah, 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 no, I often do that yeah. Yeah. Um, lucky there's a branded glass just in front of us there but all the way through this you seem to have been quite almost evangelical about getting people to um, to understand fish and not be afraid of fish and to eat fish your yeah. books seem to be aimed not at the kind of like the high level connoisseur but really trying to you know a lot of people seem to be yeah. afraid uh, that, that fish is hard but is, is that fair to say that all the way through you've wanted to open this up to kind of yeah you know, the, I, I think the, there were two things at play really one is that I never went to college to be a chef and therefore I don't have any like preconceived ideas of how to cook something and the other is like all my best seafood meals in the whole wide world have been sat at a table either in the Mediterranean or on my travels where I've had a plate of fried anchovies I've had a grilled sole I've had a crab I've had a lobster I've had a plate of pasta with some seafood I've had some cured fish none of it has ever been complicated to do and I think the problem is the moment you kind of see seafood dishes that get incredibly complicated you use the essence of what it's about so everything I've ever taught people is like if you can get a really amazing fresh mackerel don't do anything with it put it under the grill add some lemon you know some some salad with it have something that's acidic to cut through it some onions some capers or something like that you won't get a better meal and to this day i still believe those very same things and they're the same principles that we apply at seahorse and and in everything we do really yeah i was at uh, hive beach cafe just down yeah, the coast awesome. a few days ago yeah i went there last week for breakfast had mackerel and my goodness it was beautiful Man, it was I, so I, simple such I, a simple i had a kip dish. of a breakfast there the other day i was driving past and i was with some mates that had never been my sailing buddies and i was like come on i'm going to take you somewhere and i sat down and had a kipper there from the chesel smokehouse and i'm just sitting there just picking these bones eating this smoky fish looking out to see and i'm like this is epic. Yeah, that is seafood, it. right? That yeah, is what it's all about, yeah, you know? Yeah, and, and so some, and it just seems to evolve. Every year I go, there's another marquee that's been added to the side of that space as he spreads yeah. along, the, along the cliff top. But uh, yeah, food at its best. It's our version of the Chiringuita, right? In, yeah, you know, definitely. Spain, yeah, Ibiza, it's, yeah, you know, it's yeah, perfect. It's it is beautiful, yes, simplicity. Um, so, right, so we, we come to rockfish then. Yeah. So seahorses up and running. What was the yeah. trigger then to go, right, we're going to do, we're going to go again? <laughs> I think it was, it, it was like, it was, I, th I think we sort of thought about doing something like, let's have another restaurant because we want to make some more money. And, you know, so we we did it and we had you know fish and chips in boxes and i remember on the first day we took 1200 quid it was like really packed we weren't where was it it was in dartmouth. dartmouth and we weren't making our own chips 
and uh, people were stopping me in the street just saying, Mitch, you know, the chips in there are awful. I was like, oh, no, you know, this is a nightmare. So, you know, something we've never done before. And then I realised how many staff we had and, like, 1,200 quid was never going to, like, pay any bills. This is, this is just nuts. So within a very short period of time, we realised, like, that model that we had in our minds is not going to work. So we gradually started to evolve it and... We went through all the learning curves of having local fish on the menu, then it's not available from the market. So you end up telling people, look, we haven't got any lemon sole or Dover sole today. Then we've only got a fryer, so how do we, how do, we do everything that's not fried? So then we put a grill in and then the grills were kind of okay, but more people enjoyed grilled fish than fried fish. And then we decided to put a plancher in, then we decided to put char grills in. And then we had a really unfortunate incident where, where we did some, uh, we just put an, on our menus like gluten-free fish and chips no problem and I had a phone call from a guy that said have you ever seen a three-year-old girl with celiac disease that's eating gluten she's in terrible pain I'm in hospital with her that's because you're fish and chips and I was like whoa hang on a minute like, I'm a chef we fried it in hot oil and he explained to me that the segregation needed to be like if you were going to call yourself gluten-free it needs to be proper so at that moment I just decided right you know what we're going to do we're going to rip out every range we've got. We're going to put separate pans in and we're going to make our whole menu gluten-free. We're not just going to give somebody a little card that says like, you're gluten-free so you can have these few things. Every single thing on the menu will be gluten-free. And we made a pledge and then we got certified by the Celiac Association. And that's what we do at Rockfish. Every single thing on the menu is gluten-free or has a gluten-free option. So bread might be switched, but actually everything has got no gluten in. And it's amazing uh, the, how many people appreciate it. So it was an involvement. And then there was all the environmental issues and then we started supporting sportsmen because I wanted people to see the brand visibly. So we've supported young sportsmen that have ended up sailing around the world in the Volvo races. And then we ended up with a tablecloth whereby, you know, we, we, we write on the, uh, on the tablecloth what's available each day so we can let the best of the catch. And then I dreamed that we'd have a fish business. And uh, so now we've got a fish business of our own. And then more recently, we've just gone into fishing boats. So I- okay. A fish of, business as in wholesaling? As in, no, we only, only buy it for ourselves okay. and, uh, and do it and work with one other company. Right. And, uh, and that's it. But along the way, there were some real important points, which were, I realized that I needed money. And I also realized that I needed to have a really good board of directors. Mm. So Henry Dimbleby was a really good friend of mine. He used to come down a lot. And, and I, I approached Henry and said, Henry, we were in Borough Market and had a coffee. And I said, look, would you join me and, and help me build a board together? And then the second one was a guy called John Barnes. John Barnes, uh, an extraordinary restaurateur, operator, visionary, who used to run uh, Harry Ramsden's Centre International. Um, before that, he was the MD of UK KFC and then just went on his own with Harry's, made lots of mistakes, learned, built the Tasker up, which was a great brand, Spanish brand in those days, sold it for lots of money, was on the board of Cafe Nero, lots of really amazing brands in the beginning. And I remember seeing John at a, a conference one day, thinking, what an awesome guy, and I introduced myself to him. Anyway, cut a long story short, I invited him. He was in my restaurant one night in the Seahorse, and, uh, and I invited him a year later to come and have a look at Rockfish. And he walked in, he went, ah, this is his words where he said, this is what I should have done with Harris, amazing. I told you I wasn't gonna get involved with business again, but you know what, I'm in and I'll help you raise money. So John got a load of buddies together and helped me raise money. Henry got a load of buddies together. Um, That's a good then, network right there, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was a good yeah. network. And then we, uh, we sort of opened, we had Plymouth open. I had a couple of really good mates from Young Seafood who were my sort of founder investors that, you know, lent me a lot of money that, well, let's just say they put some money in and 
they ended up having to put a lot more in. Really? And, and this is uh, very different because the first time round with, with yeah. Fishworks, you'd gone to the stock market to raise the money. Yeah, is that right? yeah, and yeah, we had. And that was a disaster. And, and did you deliberately not want to do that again? Was that Absolutely, a conscious? Absolutely, yeah. I, I think in the beginning that? it was like, we could, well, because the trouble is, I think with restaurant groups, you need to be able to grow organically. You need space to grow. You need patient equity. You need investors along the way that appreciate the bumps in the journey and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, there were, there were bumps along the way, of which there is with everyone's story that, you know, I had to sit down in front of people and ask for cash on a Monday and then ask for cash again on the Friday, you know, when things weren't great and people were like, Mike, this is nuts, Mitch. But anyway, we then, we then got the business to a stage and then we decided to sell a small chunk of it to 27 people. We ended up with 27 in an offer and it was people like Giles Corrin, um, Henry's parents and uncles and, you know, some really great quality people all put money in which allowed us to go. And then last year we sold a little bit to a company called Gresham Ventures who are a private equity company. But the wonderful thing about private equity companies like them was we've had loads of offers of investment, but they just loved our business. They, they didn't really, they don't want us to push it. They said, look, we'll invest alongside on the same terms that you're in. And we, we are in it to build a business with you, not to just like drive it for the next three or four years and then flog it. And I think the world is changing in terms of what investment actually means these days. You know, there are a lot of people that are just solely driven by profit, flip it, make money. And there are a whole lot of people about, which is what Rockfish is about, is let's do something really awesome. And one of the game changers for me and the company was uh, five, six years ago, I started working with Hawksmoor. They, they approached me and uh, asked me to work with them in Open Air Street and help them set up their supply chain of seafood. And they'd been to the seafood and they'd been to the seahorse. And I got on incredibly well with both Will and Hugh, the two founders. And Will Beckett is one of the most extraordinary human beings I've ever met, who's the CEO of um, Hawksmoor. And I said to him, one day we were, on a, we were on a Hawksmoor away day at Coombshead Farm, and I was saying, I'm looking for a chairman. Um, you know, somebody who's got some industry experience, you know, do you know anyone? And he said, I'll give it some thought. And he said, look, I've given it some thought. I'll put my hat in the ring. How would you, how would you like me to do it? And it was the best thing I've ever done. And not only is he one of my greatest friends, he's just got so much insight into the industry. Hawksmoor is an extraordinary business to be able to learn for what, what, what they, those guys have created. And Will has helped me to shape the future business plan of this company, which is not about making money. It's about doing something amazingly well. It's about doing something at scale with incredible integrity from where we source our wines to how our fish is sourced to where we get rid of our rubbish, how we treat our people, absolutely everything. And what we found is money follows that completely and utterly. Margins follow, everything follows, good practice follows. And we spend all of our time thinking about taking head on the challenges of how do we solve our waste problem? How do we get fish direct from boats? Well, let's just, let's just start investing in fishing boats. Let's just start investing in mussel farms is some of the future and the things that we want to do. So that eventually we can end up with a business that's totally fully integrated. Um, and we're, we're on the way now of doing that. And I think if you know, we could have a legacy of 25 restaurants all in areas like Weymouth, like Brixham, nobody would ever invest in those areas before. Uh, but for me, it's obvious sitting over the sea eating seafood, right? I mean, it's, all, it's just like going back to where I started, fish, restaurant, See, you know, it all works. It's, it's exciting to hear. Yeah, I love it. And it's exciting to hear that that trajectory is, is possible because 
you know, the industry in the last couple of years, particularly the casual dining sector, seems to have been, as you mentioned then, that sort of venture capitalist-backed flip-it model. You know, a lot of them look more like property businesses than hospitality businesses. You know, buying in at 50 units, three years, double yeah. the units to 100 units, sell it again, somebody else buys in at 100, doubles it to 200. Yeah. Um, and it's been depressing to watch hospitality be turned into a commodity at that level. And it feels like yeah. in the last six months, the bubble's burst a little bit on that. I'm, well, the I'm, thing I'm is, you've got, you got if you, if, it's a heady cocktail, right? Load of money, load of city centres being developed, and a really good business model. Suddenly, you put all three of those together, and it blows up because you're, you're you know, I look back at some of, uh, I won't mention the brands, but some of the sites that other brands have been in. I'm like, why would you put your restaurant there? And it's because some property guy was like, well, I can put X in here, Y in here, X in here, Y in here, put them all in. Here's a big presentation of how many people live in the area. But oh yeah, it's all going to work. Fueled up with money. They did what we did in Marlebone High Street, which was like, we made that amount of money. 10 of those, right? We're all sorted. There's only one Marlebone High Street. You can't find another Marlebone High Street. And I'm sure in every restaurant group, there are the performers that, you know what? You're never going to replicate it. It's just impossible. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and also, I think when you're opening restaurants like that with a look, what you're doing is really creating a stage set. So you create a stage set, you put a load of people on it to pretend to be waiters and chefs and everyone else, and you, you create a faux pizza, Italian, seafood, whatever the thing is, but it's not real. Mm. And a real restaurant, I think, takes time to establish daily routines, habits, that people need to feel like it's their life here. It's not just, I'm just passing through. And only then can you then deliver the levels of hospitality that that's what people come out for. I think you're right. I hope you're right. Is it, is it happening? Because we're still dominated by the, by the big sort of chains. I mean, in, in Bournemouth, where we were chatting earlier, where I'm from, uh, they opened a BH2, Odeon Cinema Complex, yeah. basically. But fundamentally, a big, it looks like an indoor shopping centre. Yeah. And it's got 3,500 covers in it with, with all sorts of, you know, big name branded restaurants. I, I walked through there the other day because we've now opened just next door outside. And we've got a lovely terrace outside that overlooks the gardens. You can hear the birds and it's in the trees. In this, in essence, shopping centre, they've kind of got fake terraces outside their, their, their fake restaurants. And people are actually sat there fundamentally there's not even a window and they're just sat outside a restaurant and i think why on earth are people sat in here in what essence looks like a shopping center eating this this fake concept food but there's three and a half thousand covers there and other restaurants in the town you know authentic genuine family ones are are closing off the back of it because they flood the market they're quite often offer driven so i love your your kind of uh, description there of Mm. utopia but is it is it going to happen and and what do the public need to do to uh, make sure it does i think i think we're on the tip of you know I, i i think Jamie Oliver's restaurants were a really interesting thing for all of us. And I remember those restaurants in the early days and Jamie's integrity, you know, is, is, you know, unfounded. I mean, he's a brilliant guy and the restaurants were brilliant in the early days and kind of that was part of that heady cocktail of money, business people, other people trying to do stuff. It's not worked. I think it's the tip of the iceberg. I think there are, there are lots of other brands out there that in the next period of time will evolve, get sold, close, change, because people will revert back to wanting to go to places that are good. You know, we've got less money, want to be choosy about it. Um, Places won't survive on offers. You know, offers are heroin. I mean, how can you, you know, how can you run a business by discounting? I mean, that's not, that's not a business. That's, that's not hospitality business anyway. That's something different. And, you know, all this stuff has got money behind it, backers, people that expect, and people will, will change it. And and the day of the, the day of the independent will, 
will be back or small scale groups of restaurants. I mean, uh, that's yeah. the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, because I think that's it's true. It's when, you know, when does something become a chain? But I think if it's if it's family owned, and you know, I think you're a perfect example of that. Yeah. I suppose if there's some genuine integrity and authenticity, I actually respect anybody who can grow their business to a certain level. It's kind yeah. of hands off to them. When when it becomes irritating is when it's just a faceless board of directors yeah. in London owned by half a dozen VCs, and there's nobody in there who who sees hospitality as a as a real kind of thing. Yeah. It's just a, a P&L and a commodity, and that's been a bit depressing to watch. So, yeah, I, I share your, um, at least your wish for it, and I, I become yeah. increasingly optimistic the more people that I speak to. That I think it will. I mean, we, we've, we've examined it and said, how many restaurants can we run before we have to start making compromise? And the number's like 20, we think, that we could do as independent restaurants with really good ops teams, really good people, geographically spared. After that, I think you, I think you kind of need to make choices about what you compromise, what you don't. And and everything else, but I think small groups of of, uh, of of restaurants can do exceptionally exceptionally well if they're strategically done. I think you're right. I think Robin Hudson from the Pigs always demonstrated that quite well as he grows wow. to sort of you know ten, eleven, twelve yeah. years, doesn't he? And then well, uh, Rob, and Robin's then Robin's one of my you know dear friends, and you know I have to say one of my sort of personal. Uh, I he's somebody I incredibly admire the way he runs his business and brings people on. And uh, we work with him at the festivals, and uh, you know, I, I I chat to Robin about business and things, and I just think he he kind of leads the way in all of that. And and and, you, and as a as a sort of I like to call myself young, but I'm not. But you know, as a younger CEO, you just think to yourself, you you want to learn off those those kind of people. And, and you know, what Robin is really all about is detail, and he executes hospitality in a way that other people like Robin cares about that stuff. But more importantly, you meet his young people in the teams, and they have Robin's. Uh, ethics, enthusiasm, desire for hospitality, and he's just created that culture, and that's that's what businesses have to have. Yeah, that's nice. We um, interviewed James a couple of weeks ago. James Golding, mm. his uh, exec chef or group group chef, and uh, showed me around the uh, pig on the beach and uh, you know what they've created there. The amount of space, the kitchen garden was just stunning. It's this world, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And then the, the opportunity for the chefs to stay long term and to learn. You know, yeah. about where those plants uh, come from and just a bit of walking to that garden in the morning and pick some fresh plants and Amazing, stuff like that. It? Phenomenal, yeah. yeah. So yeah. if you end up with your with your own fishing fleet and he's got his own yeah. kitchen garden, then uh, yeah, great. Well, that's great, what I think is, it, yeah, it's doing it right. It's, I think the thing is, is doing something at, with integrity at every level and not just telling people, oh, I get this from here, I get this from there. It's like doing it. Mm. It's like, because everyone can get this from here and this from there. It's like, be it, live it, do it, yeah. deliver it, all of that stuff yeah. is important. I've always said to my team that fundamentally, even though I've had to delegate, you know, who's, who's phoning up at 11 o'clock at night and putting the order through to the, uh, to the various suppliers is that they need to imagine that I have to be able to look every customer in the eye yeah. and tell them the truth and tell them yeah. And sometimes we may not be able to source the product we said we were going to source. There might be a supply yeah. challenge. Fish is a great example because yeah. sometimes it's just really rough out on the ocean for a few days, isn't it? And, yeah. and you come in on a Tuesday after a bank holiday weekend and we're kind of like, look, the, the boats didn't go out. And, and actually, so I, I want to touch on that around the kind of the supply route, I suppose, and around yeah. sustainability because... You've been doing this now a, a long time, yeah. 20, 30 years. Has that changed? Was, was sustainability of fish important in the early days, or at least recognised or important, or does that seem to have gained it, a lot it, of momentum it, in the last... It, it really wasn't, years? Mark. It was, uh, I mean, I, I remember 
you know, fish arriving there and, and it's abundance, wild salmon, all sorts of things that I get from the river. Why that you don't get anymore? And I think I think in the thirty well, is it thirty years? Uh, no, it's not quite thirty years. Twenty five years that I've been involved with seafood, I've definitely seen it. The landscape change immensely, and we can't get away from that. You know, it's a it's a sad thing. And I've also seen attitudes change. So in the beginning, fishermen were like, well, greenies. Now actually, fishermen are leading the way in sustainability. I you know we have some amazing fishermen in in, in the port in Brixham, who forever try new gear smaller net uh, bigger mesh nets uh, you know all sorts of things to try and leave a lesser footprint and uh, and catch better what's been the trigger do you think for their change in attitude Are they, is it because they're seeing a reduction in fish is it political pressure is it public pressure yeah, i think it's just the way of the world right i mean you know i remember seeing tomorrow's world where people were talking about you know recycling toilet paper and i remember as a kid like oh my goodness me what we're going to have things made from people's toilet paper and you know that was for hippies, right? And now you just like it's part of life. And I think in, I think like all of these things, they become habitual in the end. That sustainability is no longer a like it's a buzzword. Ten years ago, it was a buzzword. Everyone put it on their menus. I use sustainable fish. I use this just to try and satisfy. And now that isn't the case. Now I think people wake up to the fact that no, this is this is this is really real. I have to source in this way. I have to have it off this person or that person and blah blah blah. So it has changed. And for me, where we're moving towards is I have no problem with frozen fish at all. And I'm very open about it. And I don't really want to freeze the fish from out here. You know, you know, we're working with small scale fisheries. We want to be able to uh, enjoy that harvest. And Which is pointing at the ocean outside the window for anybody. Yeah, yeah, who's, uh, I'm, yeah, sorry, I'm <laughs> sorry. pointing as if it's I'm, your TV as if career. you can see. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that that's really important. But actually, uh, for me, I want every single thing on our menu within the next year to be uh, MSC certified. So that will be product from different parts of the world, but from fisheries that are being fished and harvested sustainably. And I think I can still maintain great quality seafood uh, sustainably. And then the small scale fishery for all the local seafood is, is, is really what people come for because, you know, these little fisheries that are fit, these little um, within fishing within six miles, uh, you know, there's some amazing, there's an amazing fishery out there. Those ones that are fishing uh, locally, say within six miles, yeah. a smaller kind of day boat. So they ever realistically going to get MSC accreditation or are you saying that you would use I don't, both? I, I would use both. You'd I mean, both. I don't see them getting MSC accreditation, but I, when you look at a small fishing boat, two guys, one net, you know, trawling, the effort is, uh, is just minute in comparison to the size of the ocean and everything else. And also it's well managed by quotas, you know, Nick, our guy who skippers uh the trawler that we just got involved with he's just such a forward-thinking fisherman i mean he mailed me this morning saying i landed last night i had a huge i had four trays of rubbish other people's nets crap that i'd fished from the ocean i brought it back to the harbor and i said to the guys where can i put this and the harbor authority said there's no facility here for dumping you have to take it back out to sea and that's currently the way things are we're going to change that today there'll be a bin a rockfish bin on side Nick brings back rubbish, he puts it in there. And these are the kind of habits that I think, you know, uh, will have to change over the next few years. Yeah. I think it's important because accreditation, you know, for me, it's, it's almost your kind of uh, fallback position. So the stuff you use a lot yeah. of, your, maybe your, your Hake or your Haddock or your Cod, MSC accreditation is important. But I do think it's important to support those, the little boats that are going Absolutely. out that by definition but are it's not, little, it's not even little boats, it's the beam trawlers. I mean, the whole yeah. of the British fleet yeah. uh, is incredibly well managed. Um, it's some of the best fish in the world, if not the best fish in the world. I've travelled the world eating seafood and I come back to eat turbots and brills and dover soles and our crab and our lobster and our oysters and our scallops from out here and 
mackerel from out here, sardi, you know, it's just phenomenal, you know, really amazing. So we've got to, we've got to support the British fleet. And my, my argument is, look, if, I, if I'm by the sea, where all of our restaurants are, I want to eat the fish on the day it's landed. I want, I want to really eat it. If I live somewhere which is 24, 36 hours away by transport, what's the point? Freeze it. Because one of the things I've always pondered in my mind is how much fish in a supermarket, let's just say fresh fish or anywhere, gets caught, goes to a depot, goes to a supermarket, goes to a home. All those points are various places where it's going to be wasted, right? Supermarket can't sell it or fish market can't sell it, restaurant can't sell it or housewife at home can't, doesn't cook it. Someone hasn't come home, so they decide to the next day, then they throw it away. So out of a ton of catch, how much physically gets eaten and not wasted on the way? Freeze it. You know, if you're in Norway, freeze it. Make it durable. Use it as you need it. Because for me, that's all part of sustainability too. But enjoy and feel incredibly blessed that there's this fresh fish on our doorstep here. And do you think, I, I don't know the supply chain, but you know, you'll have looked into this more than me, but uh, from a consumer perspective, where we want them to buy sustainable fish, can they do that in the supermarket? Certainly there's some MSC stuff, yeah. but the local kind of day boat stuff, is, can you get that from the supermarkets? Or is that a case of finding a local fishmonger? I know they're still, do they still exist? I mean, I, am, you know, I, don't, I don't wage war against supermarkets. They have a place, but I think that them, that them trying to do the, the fishmonger thing outside of frozen MSC stuff is madness. And I think if you've got a fishmonger near you, uh, you know, it's a great one in Weymouth, Wayfish, where you can go and buy local fish. It's not cheap. You see it as a treat and, uh, and you enjoy it. And for me, that would, be, that would be the right thing. However, the supermarkets do provide, um, you know, some great MSC certified frozen product that we should be using. You know, it's a combination of both. Okay, now I've got to ask you about prawns because last time I looked into prawns a few years ago, we, we took them off the menu because most prawns were farmed out in Vietnam and Thailand and they were grown in these big vats and they were pumped full of antibiotics yeah. and it was just a pretty revolting product, really. Again, quick look on your website last night. You found a way of sourcing. Have you either either farm prawns or wild prawns? Can you just yeah, explain so where, we, where should we be buying prawns from? Okay, so I mean, that? you know, uh, we're, we're going through a dilemma. Uh, at the moment, it's one of our best sellers. We have farm prawns from a farm in Asia and uh, they are uh, BAP certified, which is best aquaculture practice. So you don't find that kind of, you know, full on antibiotic. However, I haven't visited the farms and it's something I always make a point of doing. Um, we're trying to use an ASC certified prawn, which is the ASC is the accreditation of the, it's not the MSC, but it's like the MSC for farm product. We use a bit of wild prawn, but they're not MSC certified. So most likely in the next year, if we don't find a solution, prawns will be off the menu. Yeah, yeah tricky. Just, it's the same as, as we did yeah. a couple of years yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah. Was, was, was a challenge. Yeah. I met some, do you know the Chalkstream guys, the Triops? Yeah, 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 yeah. I was yeah. interviewing them a few weeks ago. And uh, that's a great, uh, a great, great product. And because again, you go back into sort of farming in its early days and there were rumours of, you know, up to five kilos of a certain species of fish yeah. being fed to grow one kilo of salmon yeah. because that's the fish we wanted. But, but they seem to have got to the point where it's almost, you know, a, a, yeah. A, a very one -to -one, efficient way, one-to-one yeah. one from a kilo perspective. So. And, and I, think, I think all of that stuff is like, you know, farm fish has its place. Um, but we've got a farm sea bass on at the moment, but we're taking off next week because we can't get it ASC certified. And I don't want to be part of something that isn't at the top of its game. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, but, but fish farming does have its place, that's yeah. for sure. It's, yeah. yeah, but it's not, um, you, like you say, you do have to look into it. You need to, you need to check it out because, I don't know, certainly bass, when we were doing the farm, bass was coming in from Greece and it was very different standards to some of the mm. British farms. So I feel for the consumer because it's complicated, isn't it? It's once you go yeah. down this rabbit hole, it, 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 it's hard. Yeah. So, uh, but, we, but we should have all that work done. I think so. I, I mean, think that's, that's our job as the hospitality yeah. industry is we should know food yeah. better than, than the yeah. public, I think, isn't it? Totally. And, uh, which is why I love having these conversations because I'm yeah. off learning it. We're getting um, short on time, Mitch. So I just want to ask... Yeah. Out of everything you do now, so you know you've done TV, you write books, you cook, you open restaurants. Which, what's which bit of your of your job, of your life, of your role do you enjoy the most now? I, th- I think I enjoy um, thinking. So I think a lot, and I think about the direction of the company, what we can do, uh, look at the rest of the world, and what the rest of the world's doing, and how we can kind of fall into place with some of the things that are happening in the world. And I also see myself. I, I really like looking inwardly at the company and just talking to people about inspiring them to be the best version of themselves within our company. And that's the best part of the job that I really enjoy. And also waiting tables in the Seahorse, you know. Um, I still love that kind of like grounding of, of actually talking to customers because that's why I got into the business of talking to people. Do you get given a much smaller section than the other waiters and waitresses? Because well, uh, you talk. I'm actually uh, made to look really good. They're very gracious guys. I'll pick up the odd plate. I'll take the odd right. order. But behind me there, I'm, I'm like the swan gliding around, looking like I'm really busy, but doing a great job. And that, you know, it's, I'm yeah. very grateful o- for that o- opportunity. Over the years, my section would get smaller and smaller as people realise that fundamentally, and I think it's the way if it's your restaurant and you like hospitality, is you go to Each the first chat. table, you end up practically sitting down and joining them for yeah, a glass of wine. Of like, How's it going, Mark? And you go, oh, yeah, yeah, it's really yeah. good. And you chat. And they learn very fast. They're like, just give Mark two tables. And now they're like, okay, give him no tables. And he'll just go around and wander, just go around, but, wander around and chat to but people. But Mark, that's so, so important, right? Because if I come into your restaurant and you're there and you're like, Hey Mitch, how are you? Uh, have a glass of wine on me, or sit down. I'll be over in a minute. Then I'm made up. Yeah. And I think the problem is with the stage set restaurants that we talked about earlier. It's like, whose restaurant am I going to? We. I remember a quote I read somewhere that somebody said, "What's your favourite restaurant?" And the line was, "Anywhere that knows me." Because the reason we go to restaurants, the reason we take our friends to restaurants, when you walk through the door, someone says, "Mitch, do you want? You know, why do we go to a local pub? Usual beer, mate." Yeah. And your friends are like, "This, like this, they're treating him so amazingly well." Yeah. And, uh, and that, I think, is what yeah, good hospitality good. Old, is about. Old school hospitality. Yeah. And then anybody who's looking to uh, maybe get into the, to the sector, yeah. um, any really good advice or really bad advice that you've been given over the years or that you give to people um, who, are, who are thinking about doing this for you a You mean living? people who are opening a restaurant or just coming into the sector? Yeah. Or any, anywhere in food and yeah. beverage. Really. I think a lot of people listening kind of get excited and they'll be doing that thing of going, yeah. you know what, I'm not enjoying my uh, accountancy, uh, boring yeah. job life. I want to go and do this. It's got a really high reputation for failure yeah. rates, 80% of f and businesses something yeah. like that fail in the first 24 months i asked mark hicks the same question a few uh, a few weeks ago yeah. about you know what what would you say to anyone his fundamental advice was don't open restaurants he's definitely had uh, enough yeah i think um, no i i think opening restaurants and serving people isn't a phenomenal thing i think it's just a case of don't open a restaurant expecting to be rich and come up with the kind of latest idea and concept but if there is something inside of you that has that wonderful human gift of i love to see other people smile and i love to just give people a really great time then go and open a restaurant, go back to the old days where the husband cooks and the wife's at the front. You know, it's what hospitality used to be like, have 10 tables, don't think about having 10 restaurants and look at it and make a living. Whereas a lot of people open a restaurant and say, you know what, 10 of these, man, I'm gonna make a million. It's like, you won't. Have one, make whatever your salary is in your other business and enjoy it because that's why European restaurants are still open. That's why restaurants in Florence have been there for years, in Venice have still have been there. You know, some of my favorite restaurants in the world, they're descendants of the owners or friends of the owners or family of the owner that was five, 10 decades ago. And everybody makes a living from it. 
Perfect. I think it's great advice. Yeah. So when I sit down with people and they, they come in and they ask, they say, you know, can I meet you for a coffee? Can I pick your brains? And they sit down and go, right, I'm going to open 10 of these straight away. You're kind of like, how many have you got at the moment? None. Yeah. Just open one. Just open one. Open one. Learn some stuff. Nail it. Yeah, nail it. See if you Make enjoy it. it. Understand and, uh, it. Go and work alongside people like yourself or other people that have tried it and done it. But for people not wanting to open a restaurant, I think that the hospitality industry has never been a better time to join it. So if you're kind of bored at sitting at a desk, typing, cold calling, whatever people do inside offices these days, getting out and being able to talk to people, learn about wines, get on some trips, you know, do some stuff. There are, there are dozens of really good hospitality companies. You know, you look in Cornwall at Nathan Outlaw, uh, Rick and Paul Ainsworth and all those kind of guys that are doing awesome stuff down there. You can go and live in Cornwall, work for an awesome business. There's some great places in London, Hawksmoor, awesome businesses. You know, they're, they're no longer like, let's just get some kids in and, you know, work the work in the death to make the owner rich. It's like, they care, right? Yeah, that's awesome. it. We should, we, we're in this industry. We should care yeah. about our team. Thank you, Mitch. You've got to uh, move Pleasure. on. You've got to go and sail, sail down the coast, yeah. I think, back to I'm, Dartmouth. I'm sailing so. back to Dartmouth today. So, so this time of year, I, I try and spend my summers um, sailing from restaurant to restaurant. That's, that's, that's and, a great uh, excuse spending to time in each kind of area and, uh, and all the rest of it. Yeah, I love it. It's great. Yeah, amazing. If people want to uh, follow you or the business, which is best, are you, are you active on okay, social media yeah, personally? Yeah, active on social or? media. I think I'm Mitch Seafood on um, uh, Instagram, uh, the Rockfish uh, UK, or just go to our website, therockfish.co.uk, uh, or um, theseahorserestaurant.co.uk in Dartmouth, or type in my name, you'll find we'll, all we'll, stuff. We'll yeah. find you. I'll put some uh, links in the show notes as well. Humansofhospitality.co.uk. Mitch, thank you for sparing the time. Pleasure, really, Mark. Loved very it. much. Really, really great chatting to you. Thank you. So there you have it. You have reached the end of another episode of the Humans of Hospitality podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please go and visit our website, humansofhospitality.co.uk for the show notes and extra episodes and information. And whilst you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter and to receive free materials all about the humans behind our incredible industry. Lastly, if you could subscribe, rate and review this podcast, you will be massively helping me out and it would be hugely appreciated. Thank you so much. We'll be launching another podcast in just seven days time. Cheers. Cheers.